0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Stab in the Dark, the UK TV podcast that investigates the worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama. It puts them in a cell for the night, gives them a damn good kicking, because it's just a metaphor and, you know, things like that don't actually happen anymore, then finds out what they've got to say for themselves the next morning. My name's Mark Billingham, and today in our interview room, we welcome two of the UK's best and most critically acclaimed crime writers. Sarah Hillary is a former winner of the Theakston's Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year award, as is Belinda Bauer, who, somewhat greedily, is also the winner of the CWA Gold Dagger, for her first novel, no less. In this episode, I'll be talking to Belinda and Sarah about their careers, their writing styles, their characters, and whatever else takes our fancy. Plus, we'll be taking a closer look at small screen favourite Luther, starting on UK TV this month. Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. So, Belinda and Sarah, welcome uh, to the podcast to our sumptuously appointed interview room. Where the biscuit you're already digging into the biscuits. Uh, so let's get important questions out of the way first. Sarah, biscuit of choice?
1: Oh gosh, that's different. Hobnob.
0: A hobnob. Anything chocolate? Anything chocolate? No, see, no, neither of you going like for the chocolates. king of biscuits, which is just the McVitie's digestive.
1: Oh, that is a good one. It's
2: not. It is a good
3: one. That? That a a good one. Cheese
0: yeah. on it, if you want to go savoury, yeah. and it's the best dunker.
3: Yeah, it is. They've got a caramel version now, actually. Oh, which that's are, the that's like, the work of the devil. You think it would be, but it's surprisingly good. <laughs>
0: OK, well down to business. Um, enough talk about biscuits. Now you've both had uh, books out this year, or certainly within the past year. So let's talk a little bit about them. Belinda, now you've left your pet iguana back in Wales to be with <laughs> us today. I am going to be coming back to the iguana. Uh, but firstly, tell us a little bit about The Beautiful Dead.
1: Um, the Beautiful Dead is set in South London and is about a TV reporter, um, Eve Singer, who uh, sort of like has to try and hang on to her job by reporting murder and mayhem all over the city. And a serial killer starts to uh, to go to work and um, starts to enlist her as his publicity machine. So begins to perform his his what he likes to call his exhibitions, Ugh. specifically for her to report upon.
0: Now you've been a reporter, so so did you draw on your own experiences writing this one?
1: Uh, not immediate experiences. <laughs> <but> <laughs>
0: you've never come across a serial killer, then?
1: Um, no, not personally. But I think you do draw on the experience of. Um every day confronting the the fine moral line that you have to tread um, to keep all the balls in the air you 're on both sides of the divide at the same time very often as a reporter you're you 're talking to the police you 're talking to the criminals so you know it was a very interesting period of my life and it was really um, nice to revisit it in this book
0: is it was it hard to stay detached from some of these fairly awful things you must have been? involved with as a as a journalist
1: i think when you go into a situation as a journalist with that remit then it is quite easy to stay detached and i think that's where the fascination comes from so you don't you know i would go into prison sometimes and, and interview prisoners who've done terrible things um but you because you're there with a with an agenda uh, you don't become personally involved in it, you are just asking them questions that will elicit the answers that you require and so it's quite easy to remain detached and only look at it in hindsight and be full of awe that you spoke to this person who did this thing and managed to actually not clock them one. <laughs>
0: Showing admirable restraint. Um, so just I just do have to come back to the iguana. Briefly. It's a chameleon. Is it a chameleon? It's a chameleon. Oh we we should shoot the researchers. It's a chameleon. <laughs> not that I'd know the difference if I saw a chameleon and iguana on the table, I probably wouldn't be able to tell you the difference. Chameleon's the one that changes the colour. That changes right?
1: colour,
0: yes. Okay. And what, is, what does a chameleon eat?
1: uh crickets flies spiders any kind of insect and do they really. get them themselves
0: or do you have to provide them um, for during chameleon? the
1: winter you provide them and well, um,
0: what you go online and you well, buy you can, you
1: can get them through the post and in fact well when stop
0: <laughs> what's dead fly
1: no it has to be alive
0: right so the postman is delivering you live insects that's right
1: yes okay. i had a chameleon many years ago and there was a postal strike. And my crickets didn't arrive. And I went, to the, uh, <laughs> I went to the sorting office and said, listen, I've got live crickets and I, I, they need, to, I need them. And they, said, they opened a the door at the back of the sorting office, a huge warehouse full of undelivered boxes. And I said, help yourself. And I walked straight over to the box where the crickets were chirping like crazy. I said, I'll have that one, please. <laughs>
0: Oh my lord. So, um, so uh, Sarah, your your protagonist, uh, Di Marnie, Rome, is back this year with another story with a fairly intense and complicated plot, yes. family story. Tell us a bit about that.
3: Um, so it's well, it begins with a series of vigilante attacks in London, which the Marnie and the team that are doing the investigating realize quite quickly are. Um, being that the, the victims of these vigilante attacks were in fact themselves at one time or other uh, guilt found guilty of vicious or violent attacks themselves they'd, they'd also prison time um, but perhaps not as much prison time as as they should have done they got short sentences or um, it happened when they were when they were quite young um, so um, once they've made that connection, then they they're hunting the the vigilante who, or the, to more than one vigilante they suspect. And at the same time, there's um, uh, a burglary at Marnie's family home, which six years ago is was the was a crime scene because that's where her uh, foster brother Stephen murdered her parents. And it's now she she rents the house out because she. Doesn't want. She isn't quite ready yet to to sell it or to give it up because she's always suspected that it might somehow hold the secret, uh, the reason why this fourteen year old foster boy um, committed this, these terrible murders. Um, and there's, so there's a burglary there, and her tenants are hospitalised and. Um, then they discover that a that a shoebox was taken that had been very very well hidden in the house, um, and Marnie realises that she, actually this is a very personal crime, and the shoebox contains things of hers that only Stephen could have hidden. Um, so she begins to realise that there's this this latest spate of attacks seems somehow to be involved, re- revolving around her and her her past.
0: Right. Well, yeah. So, so when we first met Marnie in the first, you know, in the first book. Obviously, there's this trauma that, mm, that is, yeah. you know, sort of defining her. This is the fourth one, so how do you feel that she sort of progressed and developed? And is it important that she? Oh, you it's, know...
3: yeah, it's really important that she's changed. Yeah. I think I, I hate those long-running series where these people that are witnessing terrible things, the worst of humanity, on a daily basis, somehow pick themselves up like the same people. But interestingly, I found I. I I um, don't like to reread my own stuff. I don't know how you feel about, you guys feel about it, but I, I, I find myself really quite... I, I tend not to do that. I'll listen to it on audiobook, maybe, um, because it feels like a different story if it's someone else is reading it. Um, but I, when I reread Someone Else's Skin recently, I was surprised at how sort of prickly and quite unpleasant Marnie was. Um, and I think I, as the series progresses, she's um, becoming softer which is actually her way of becoming stronger. So I found that quite interesting because I didn't set out to do it that way because I don't plot the, the series or or the books. Um, but she was definitely, she's now able to make herself vulnerable to people in a way that she definitely couldn't at the beginning of the series. Right. Um, and um, which is, you know, feels quite dangerous to her to do that. Um, but it's uh, part, of her, part of her journey.
0: And why London? Books are set in London. You're not. You don't live in London. So why? Why did you choose? Well, I lived in
3: London for several years before I moved out. And um, really, what it was is I'd always wanted to write a book set in or around Battersea Power Station, and I finally got to do that with the third book in the series. Why? Why were you so fascinated with with Battersea Power Station? I don't. I can't explain it really, other than it's. um, at the time that I was first obsessed with it, I was living in London. I used to drive in and out, ride in and out of London on the train and pass Battersea, um, and I always loved it. it. looked so huge then, like a big upturned table with those massive chimneys and. Um, I became quite obsessed with it at one time and then I went back to look at it because I realised I, I wrote the first draft of Taste Like Fear the third book set and the, the, the opening crime scene is set within Battersea Power Station and they're actually completely they're developing it over into luxury penthouses now yeah. Sting's bought one of the yeah. Uh, oh has Oh them. God bless him
0: Now a lot of people kind of associate the countryside with more the sort of cosier end of yes. crime You know Oh old Mrs Johnson's jam's been nicked at yeah. the fete or whatever that's yeah. me generalising horrendously about <laughs> cosy rural crime but your books are anything but cosy so why the countryside for you?
1: Um, Well really I like to set books places where I've been and that I know reasonably well I think that's kind of important for me um, to be able to uh, give a sense of authenticity. When we first moved to uh, back to Britain from South Africa where I spent a lot of my formative years we moved to North Devon and so I had a very interesting sort of transitional period there where we'd gone from being pretty you know, well off people to being extremely poor and seeing poverty for the first time in my life, you know, as somebody who was suddenly plunged into it was really interesting for me. Not at the time, obviously, yeah. <laughs> but by the time I came to write a book, uh, it was um, an experience that I really felt able to draw upon. Plus, I really like that uh, juxtaposition between the very cozy scenery, the beauty, um, the smallness of somewhere like Exmoor, which is where the first three books were set, and murder. I think it's, a, it's an interesting place to go, especially if you don't go down the cosy route. Yeah, you know, if you, you know, if you use that juxtaposition to enhance the horror of a crime like murder.
0: But then by the time of Rubbernecker, which won just about every award going, as far as I can remember, uh, you're in the big, bad city, big, bad city of Cardiff. <laughs> yes. So, so what, you know, what differences did you find in terms of... I mean, there's obvious differences in the landscape, but how did those differences affect the story and the characters, do you think?
1: I don't know if they really did. I think that every story has the perfect place to take place. And when I start to think about a story... Um, the, you know when I get the first idea the first thing question I ask myself is who's the best person to tell this story and where's the best place for it to happen and that's when I start to think about all the places I've been in my life all the places I've seen in my life where you know would that be a suitable location for this story to take place and if it's somewhere um, that I'm not that familiar with I'll go there and actually stay there for a little while and, and so I get a real flavour for the place.
0: I mean, I will, I, yeah, I, I suppose you must you must agree, Sarah, that London I I th- I think London's a perfect place to, to, to mm, yes, set a grand novel yes. in as in any big city would be. I've always had an issue with the countryside. It's a strange <laughs> bias I have. I just hear the tune from the arches and start you know, start to tremble. Um but, because I'm sure obviously all sorts of terrible things happen in the countryside but in in somewhere like London it seems to me that you've got the best of both worlds because you've got this sort of glamorous well s- sort of glamorous facade and the tourist friendly thing but then you've got this sort of underbelly I guess you get that in Definitely. any big city
3: yes I think so and I think I like the idea that I think you can be anonymous in the city in the yeah. way that you can't I've lived in the country side so <laughs> I absolutely oh, it nearly drove me mad I tell that you. everybody was, knows everybody else everybody else's knows business. everybody else's business um, there's not actually I um the part of the countryside where I live, Lived in was the little Cotswolds, so it was basically the suburbs of the suburbs of the suburbs of Birmingham. Um, and certainly our neighbor immediate neighbors were Brummates, which is quite yeah. funny because you steady said, now. I'm yeah. a Brummy, but there were <laughs> things I like before yes, you go down yeah, that route, they were they were lovely people. There was things like you're not allowed to put your washing out at the uh, in your own garden because the tourists might want to come past and see your, your beautiful backyard. And um, how dare you have your knickers hanging up? Um, so there's that, but I think what I like about the um about, and it's not to say people can't keep secrets in the countryside, because obviously they can, but I think in the city, I I really do feel a big city is just bristling with secrets, um, I think. Um, you know, there's so many, so much diversity, so many pockets of people that you can completely slip between the cracks. That's what the third book was about. It was about people that become homeless and then just become lost. Um, and I think that absolutely, I believe that that's that's true in a city. You you can just vanish off the face of the earth as and it were. You,
0: and you can confront issues like you know the, the multi ethnic makeup yes, of a city can. and stuff, which yeah. is not not really the case in the countryside. No, but it? in
1: the in the countryside's defence here, I have to say that um, although there are fewer people and fewer secrets possibly. Those secrets have deeper roots because you have many generations possibly of people and histories that Mm. have to be uncovered and whereas in the city you're dealing with a far more sort of transient um, population in in a lot of cases and so I think they both have their part to play and I'm really pleased that I did come away from Exmoor um, before the whole midsummer murders <laughs> <laughs> plague took hold of me, yeah. and actually started to set books just where I fancied them and where I thought the story would work best. Yeah, if and, you keep writing mystery yeah. set
0: in the countryside, eventually you will have a character who's killed by a large cheese. <laughs> yes. I mean, that is—I <laughs> think they do that actually
1: th- do. They do. Yeah, yeah they, they roll <clears throat> them, don't they? Yes, yeah, yeah. and very somebody will be they
0: killed they by but a you large the cello rolling pla- cheese.
1: You know, the cello player of the ELO was killed by a, a giant rolling haystack. Ch-
0: Shut the front door. What are you <laughs> talking about? He
1: was driving in his car. This happened about two years ago. I'm amazed you don't know about no, it. No, right. I know. I'm, I'm shocked. He it's was gone. driving in his car and one of those enormous round haystacks rolled out of a field, jumped the hedge and crushed them to death.
0: Uh, my God. The, the countryside
3: church. is much more dangerous it than any It is dangerous. Of us no, realize. no, that's true. No, it that
0: is, is absolutely true. Oh, yeah. That's an awful way to go. It's Not t- that there's a nice way to go. Well, but.
1: I mean, you, you know what? I always, my family always say, Die, but don't die stupid. Oh,
0: so I, I'm sadly. imagining conversations at the police station. Well, how did he die? Giant haystacks. What, the wrestler? Yes. <laughs> no. No, he was actually killed by a giant haystack. Um, so, so, uh, OK, well, we've got Belinda there slightly sticking up for rural crime and Sarah defending urban crime. Um, now, since we are talking about city-based noir, or we have been, uh, UK TV Channel W is showing the fourth series of Luther, uh, next week, and I, I think it's pretty much the best series well, certainly for a long time that's been set in London, now I know you're a huge fan of, yes, the, of the show, so what what, you know, what melts your butter about Luther, well, apart from Mr. Elba oh,
1: well yes,
3: obviously, <laughs> um, well uh, oddly enough, I didn't like it when it first started you know, okay. I watched the first two episodes and I thought I was got, well, I got really, I did that thing that I never thought I would be the person doing, it's the kind of thing that if my mother watched crime she would have done, which was to go, the police wouldn't behave like that that's unreasonable you know that's think he's not a proper detective why is he being why is he being and then at about around about episode 3 i realized that it's basically it's it's batman it's a superhero yeah. series um set that happens to be set in and around a police force it's not actually meant to be remotely and once I'd realised that I just was away. I just loved what they did with it after that. And it did have moments where it became very realistic. I mean that the the, the series, whichever series it was where Nicola Walker was in it, where she yeah. played the wife brilliant. But they always it always had this it always retained this sort of epic, um graphic novel sort of oh, It quality. was very sort of
0: grand guignol yes. and not naturalistic at yeah, all, actually. No. I and think. once you'd
3: w- realised it wasn't trying to be and it yeah. didn't want to be and it didn't need to be, then I think it was just, you, you, it became, as I say, it became a, a real heroic quest, the sort of flawed hero um, pitting himself against the world um, and great characters, amazing writing, London looking, just... Fantastic, the way it's lit, the way it's, you know, you really do feel that you're watching um, a sort of legendary piece of sort of epic cinema rather than a
0: gritty, realistic TV. Oh that's my great. goodness,
1: I have obviously completely you missed go the boat. Yeah, you need, yeah. To, watch yeah. It. Yeah. You you need to watch it. You just completely sold me. Yeah. I need to watch this.
0: But, but what Sarah says is interesting, I think, that idea that when you first watch a lot of these cop shows and you'll go, oh, that's ridiculous, that, that would never yeah. happen. Yeah. Probably the same degree people say that about our books. Absolutely, um, yes. But I do think there are things that happen in some TV cop shows that we could never get away with. Yes. I mean, everybody was gripped by Line of Duty. I, yeah. I loved Line yes. of Duty, but it's yeah. preposterous. Absolutely, from a, it's absolutely preposterous, preposterous yes. in terms yes. of Apart what, what the police would be doing. But.
3: Who hangs a tracksuit on a coat hanger? Absolutely, this is my and major <laughs> problem.
0: I'm fairly convinced you can't operate anything that needs a fingerprint using severed fingers. I don't I think, don't you, think can. you can. I think there needs to be blood to the severed fingers you see, before you can you're use you're it. You're
3: honing in on the much more <laughs> you know, the proper, the proper police procedure. I was more <laughs> obsessed with why a man who was virtually bald, yeah. had an enormous paddle-shaped hair hairbrush. Hairbrush. No, that's the first full thing my wife picked up on as well, said so, that's ridiculous. Hair. And also, he was he, the whole point of his character was that he was sort of OCD, but absolutely obsessed with hygiene and, you know, uh, he, all of this stuff, and yet he had this massive hairbrush full of his own hair. That he just <gasps> it sounds to me as though he brushed the hair clean out of his hair. He did. I think he <laughs> might have done. But, yes, I think, yeah, I think, and, and because we'd like that, you see, that's a series that I liked because it was so realistic in the early days, yeah. and I did believe it. I thought it, it did have the ring of truth about it. So when they then went to the you know, the preposterous end of the scale, I, I, I felt quite cross because I knew they could do it. I felt like they'd let themselves down. In but it's got more and more way. popular as it it's got
0: has. more and more preposterous, which is an interesting yes, thing. I mean, why do you depressing. think viewers will put up with more, let's say, non-realism than they will, than readers just, will? I
1: think it was a good show to start yes. with, they get invested in it yeah, they and they just stick invested. with it. Yeah. I think they I, like I think the twists, I yeah. think. And it delivers the
3: twists all the time. It's only afterwards that you stop and think, was that a realistic twist? Yes.
1: And yeah. maybe they don't ever stop and think, is that a realistic yeah. twist? Our job yeah. is, is, to, is to, to discover whether something's a realistic twist. And we're always viewing like
3: we're always reading as writers, yeah, aren't we? So working. it makes us hypercritical. So yeah. probably the, the worst viewers for, um, for a uh, show like that.
0: Well, just, bef- just, just before we go to our little mini featurette We're going to have a break in a minute But just before we do that I'm, I'm going to pin you down now There's a very nice quote from from a Sherlock Holmes story The Adventure of, Cop- of the Copper Beaches The lowest and vilest valleys in London Do not present a more dreadful record of sin Than does the smiling and beautiful countryside So I'm now going to actually put you on the spot And you have to choose Firstly as a reader Firstly as a reader And then as a writer A rural setting or an urban setting Belinda
1: I think rural. As a reader, yes, you like
0: reading stuff set in the countryside. Yeah, I think so. Well there has to, fate and dog racing. I'm, I'm and stuff. interested in. We're going to get hate mail. For I'm interested rural, in the characters now.
1: I'm interested in the characters more than I'm interested in the plot or the setting first oh. and foremost. And I think possibly a rural setting allows somebody to investigate characters more deeply. Because there's not so much going on.
0: But you'll set your books anywhere. What comes first is the character and the story for you. Yeah,
1: I actually slightly have have a slight preference for writing in a rural setting. Okay. My book I'm writing at the moment is in a rural setting. You
0: see, I tell you what's interesting is one of the reasons I can't write in a rural setting is I have no eye for landscape. You know, you know, you know, you you tend to know what you're good at and bad at as a writer, and I know that I cannot describe a landscape. I could stare at trees in a sky for an hour and I wouldn't be able to describe it.
1: So interesting because I felt the same way a little bit. I felt a little bit handicapped writing *The Beautiful Dead*. Not so much *Rubbernecker*, which was set in Cardiff, but *The Beautiful Dead*. I really felt like I had been too long away from the city to write uh, to set a book in in London.
0: What about you, Sarah? Rural or urban?
3: Well, you see, I like—I mean, I—you can't beat *Blacklands* for you know that use of Exmoor in that mm. in that book and the, the chase as well across the moors. That hunt, that game of cat and mouse that is played at the end of that book, um, is you know just brilliant and I love it so and I've read some books set in London that aren't exciting and that are so. I do think you're right. I think it all comes back to character. So I think if the character, I'm actually forcing Marley in book five that I'm writing at the moment. I'm forcing her to to leave London. Oh, where's go, she going to go? <laughs> yeah, you know. And so a friend of mine said to me, "That's interesting. So what you're gonna what what are you going to be claiming back on your deductible? Oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> and where, where have you sent her? Where have you sent her? Is it Thailand? Is it is it? You know." And I said, "It's Cumbria." Ah. Uh,
0: um, which okay. is, but
3: she's got a new boss who's a northerner. Who's and I'm from the north, so I grew up just south of Manchester. So actually, I know that part of the world very well um, and I just wanted to but it actually I found it very te- it was the four hours up the motorway that I found really tedious and I was determined not to write the road trip because I just <laughs> didn't want to do that <laughs> but I just thought like, actually and how do you justify a London cop leaving of going for four why not just leave it to the local police and so it became quite difficult to do and then when I they were there I, I did like playing that what how different darkness the night is in the countryside versus London because London never gets dark a big city never gets properly dark. You've got light pollution, you've got, you know, and so But when you're in the countryside, and the countryside isn't quiet either, like people think it is, because you hear all the animals at night, don't you? <laughs> I've lived there oh, long, that's long enough. To, that's
0: what I don't like. Yeah. I don't want to hear animals at <laughs> yeah, night. At the least, odd fox I can handle, yeah. but...
3: At least you know police sirens, helicopters. You know, all of those <laughs> yeah. noises are fine <laughs> yeah. in the city, but sometimes when you hear those animals, just scurrying in the, you know... So I wanted to get a kind of creepy and, and contrast that with the, you know, the silence and the dark in the countryside versus the... This, the quality of silence that you get in a city, yeah. I found quite interesting to it's do. It's only one
0: book though, right? You're not going to yeah, leave no, no, her up no. there?
3: No, no, I'm not. No, she's back already in the chapter, at the end of the same chapter, more or less.
4: So, oh, okay. Oh,
0: um, it was so just
3: yeah. a chapter? It was ju- well, a couple of chapters. It was one interview oh, that she had oh, leave. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> there, I know. <laughs> there you go. It's okay. How much, you've
0: put her through enough I already. Know.
3: I thought so. I thought it was cruel. But at least at least Noah got to stay at home in the city. He didn't have to be subjected to uh, Kendall and Keswick. Oh, it's mint cake! Did Molly yeah. have any mint cake? She didn't, oh, do you know what she didn't? She should have had some mint cake. Of course, she should. It made it all worthwhile. It's the only reason to go up there.
0: <laughs> I didn't say that, listeners. No. That was Belinda Bauer who said that. Uh, now we'll be talking to Belinda and Sarah a lot more after this little break, which means it's time for our regular feature in which a stab in the darks roving reporter and the man with the spyglass, Paul Hirons, delves a little deeper into the worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama. It's over to you.
2: Yes, thanks, Mark. Now, uh, since we've been talking about Luther, I thought I'd try and get the inside track on the show. So I have uh, Houston Films, Head of Euston Films, Kate Harwood with me. And of course, Kate, of course, appeared in the very first episode of A Stab in the Dark last year and was head of BBC Drama when Luther first came into being. So Kate, welcome back to uh, A Stab in the Dark.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
2: Now, I- I'm interested, what, what was the pitch for Luther back in the day and what were your kind of first impressions of the show?
4: Well, um, I met Neil for the first time um, and he was already quite known because he'd been writing on Spooks and he um, pitched us uh, a show about uh, um, a kind of introspective and uh, quite... brilliant detective um, but with Neil it, it, the first pitch actually was going to be a serial, in other words it's going to be six episodes with one one quite big story um, and I remember that we, we looked at it and said you know, he's such a powerful character as described and, and, and sort of there at that pitch stage we'd love to find individual stories of the week um, and so Neil went away and came back with a treatment with six stories of the week that, that, that formed the first series. Um, and where it started was, was, a, was a, you know, a compelling charismatic detective and a compelling and charismatic serial killer. And they, of course, that was Alan Salusa, and they met in episode one, but that the plan from the off was not to develop that relationship in those two characters in the way that they then went on be developed but uh,
2: that's another part of the story. Uh, Obviously you mentioned the actors and I think uh, it's interesting isn't it because during the episode that we have been talking through we had a couple of guests Sarah Hillary the crime writer and Belinda Bauer. and Sarah said something really really interesting it reminded Luther reminds her of a graphic novel in lots of many ways is that something that you were kind of aiming for in the development is that would you agree with that first of all i don't
4: think it's sort of aiming for quite so specifically in development i think that still writes right for the slightly heightened sense of the world this is not grim and gritty you know truth truth and you know documentary drama this is this is someone who's looking around his world and and, and can just um kind of heighten it enough to sort of see context in a way and brian kirk who, who um directed the first block of Luther, uh, was talking um, about a particular shot to, to Neil, and said, um, Neil quotes it quite often, and said, I'm, like, I'm trying to frame Luther to the side of the picture because that's where you're going to put the speech bubble. So he was paying a little bit of an homage to the idea of Luther as a character for a graphic novel.
2: Now, uh, you know, any chat with, about Luther can't be a chat about Luther if you don't talk about Idris in the lead role, and he's such a huge presence in that lead role. Um, was Idris always the number one target for the show, do you think?
4: No, not at all. No, I mean, you know, the the one request when we started was you've got to find a leading man. Now, you'd think that'd be easy, but actually when you're casting television drama in Britain, uh, you know, leading men are thin on the ground, to be honest. The British, the British actors are hugely in demand. You find a lot of our leading men... Uh, leading male actors are in Hollywood Um, and, you know, quite often a lot of the the more character actors, uh, you know, work across both, but actually it's quite hard to find leading men. And um, we, I think he wasn't literally the first person that came up, but he was one of the first people that came up. Um, And, you know, he was hugely known here at the time. I mean, I think to the coterie and the cool people knew him from The Wire but I think he finished on The Wire some time before but he was kind of doing bits of bobs and basically as soon as his name came up there was an absolute everybody kind of went, "Oh yes, clearly a leading man, very masculine very charismatic um, you know, very handsome you know, how, how could we possibly go wrong? Now of course sometimes one does go wrong but we were very very lucky and, and Idris completely made that role his own and it. It meant a lot to him as well, I think. You know, I mean, I've heard him. He said that to me, and he said that in public that it was a, it was a role that gave gave him a lot back, and that's always the sort of symbiosis you hope for with an actor, where they get something out of it and you get something out of it. So it's been a you know very intense relationship between Neil and Edris over, over many years now
2: and it 's going to continue, you know we had the announcement yeah. yesterday, which is really interesting yeah. because yeah. obviously, as idris 's profile has grown and his work his kind of portfolio of work has grown globally he 's become linked yeah. with all kinds of fantastic characters uh, so it 's great news that it 's coming back in two thousand and eighteen. Uh, thanks so much for joining us again, Kate, uh, and with that it 's back to you in the studio, mark. Thanks, Paul. And you
0: can watch Luther on W starting on Sunday, the 25th of June at 10pm. Now, Belinda and Sarah, um, I want to talk to you both a bit more about characters and characterization. You both write characters that are incredibly vulnerable. Um, in some way. Is that vulnerability important? Sarah, you touched on it earlier, Marnie's vulnerability.
3: Yeah, I think so. I think it's the way into a character for the reader as well as the writer. I think it makes them really interesting to write. But I think also it just gives you that foothold when you're a reader. I think if you've got somebody that's um, invulnerable that is just, you know, um, throwing out punches and striding through life, it's it's unrealistic in one sense. But it's also just inaccessible, I think, to the reader. Um, So... Um, but I think you've got to be careful with it because if they're so vulnerable that they're no longer functioning properly um, you know one of those one of my least favourite tropes in sort of crime fiction is the is is the recovering alcoholic who lives in a caravan on a beach somewhere and goes home at the end of the day drinks a <laughs> bottle
0: of scotch and and then gets a call going. There's one exa- last case. Yes, you can redeem <laughs> exactly, yourself.
3: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So they, you can take it too far. I think that that sort of whole got demons thing. I mean, I, I like a I like a character with demons, but I like I want them to be. I think what's truly heroic is if you are vulnerable, but you 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 do something anyway. So if you, if it doesn't scare you and you do it, it's not terribly heroic. But if you're doing things every day that are, require a lot of courage. If you, you're frightened of various things, or you have to, you repeatedly, life knocks you down and you get back up again. That to me is what's heroic about a character.
0: You're right, though, about, about not going too far with it. I remember the Irish writer John Connolly telling me a few years ago that he'd read an American uh, cop novel in which, in the first scene, the cop goes to a crime scene. And obviously, the writer had gone, I'm going to show that my character is vulnerable and sensitive. So he sees this crime scene in the first chapter and wets himself. <laughs> <laughs> and John said to me, I just had to give up on the book at that point. I just went too much. Yes,
1: there's yeah. no, way, no way back, from, no way back pants from that. Is there's no way back from that,
0: isn't <laughs> there? Yeah, so I just need to nip outside yes. and change my. Yes. <laughs> I think that's going a bit far. Um, Belinda, you've not only written characters who are vulnerable, you've written from the point of view of vulnerable children. What kind of challenges did that present?
1: Um, I don't think you can create a character, a believable character, who's not vulnerable in some way. Right. Um, and I have. Often concentrated on children, not in a in a sort of uh, not not intentionally intentionally to sort of um, create a more vulnerable character. Um, I think I think the the stories I've um, imagined have simply involved um, children in a in a central role. Um, so that's how it's come up. But also the children who are vulnerable in my books are also strong in many ways, um, and so. I don't create vulnerable children to exploit that vulnerability. I create vulnerable children so they can overcome that vulnerability, and I think that's an important distinction. Well, it
0: goes, by, it goes back to what you were saying earlier, Sarah, about if, if, if we're writing characters who go through you know, pain and grief and death yes. and loss, mm-hmm. and then just bounce back like nothing's yes. happened—they're yeah. just cartoons, aren't they?
1: Yes, they yeah, are. and they're agree. not even cartoons these days. I mean, nowadays you go and see Marvel movies, and, and everybody's bloody vulnerable. Yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, Batman's vulnerable. Logan—I've just vulnerable. got to get out this light. I've wet myself. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That sounds in a like plastic
0: suit. <laughs> the incontinent superhero. Yes. What's your special skill? I can wet myself at will. That really puts in the In fact, super, I can't
3: help it if I'm in The supervillains just
0: run. Yes. From the in
3: continental uh, drift. You <laughs> can see it now.
0: <laughs> but in Rubbernecker, you made life even harder for yourself. I would suggest by by. I mean that story is told from the point of view of Patrick, who's this medical student with Asperger's. Yes. Again, did that present a challenge? Did you have to do a lot of research for that book?
1: I did an awful lot of research for that book, um, but. Not as much as you might think, as far as Asperger's went, simply because um, that was a matter of researching the parameters of that condition, which are quite wide ranging, and then imagining myself, imagining Patrick um, as that person, so that every word that came out of his mouth had to be believable within the parameters of the condition, and it took me a few goes to have a, you know, to get it right. Um, two or three starts at him and then once I did it was an incredibly easy thing to do because I knew exactly it was easier than writing an ordinary character who hadn't got Asperger's because I knew exactly where his limits were and by the end of the book I envied Patrick so much because he knew exactly where he was in life in so many ways whereas all my ordinary characters in other books Still confused to this day, as am I. <laughs> uh,
0: but having inhabited that character so deeply for I don't know a year or, or a year and a half, two years, whatever, I mean I, I'm going to come on a little bit later to talking about series and standalones and 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 why you've taken the decisions you have. But was it hard to say goodbye to that character oh, at the end of the book? Oh, it
1: was really hard. And as the, the 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 question I get off, asked most often is when are you going to uh, use Patrick in another book? And of course because of his a his condition and b the decisions I made in that book it's very difficult to use Patrick in another book because he's not a detective he's not a scientist who's going to you know a forensic scientist he really doesn't have a role that would um, involve him in repeat crimes but I am determined at some point to oh, do good. that.
0: Yeah, it's, I, I think readers love that thing where a character that they've, they, that they've really engaged with perhaps just passes briefly through the narrative in another book and they go, oh, that, that was Patrick, yes. that was Patrick Well, that's Robbenek.
1: exactly the kind of um, milieu that I like to work in. Yeah. I don't write recurring characters. Um, sorry, I don't write um, series characters, yeah. but I'm, a lot of my books are developing this sort of world inside my head where all the characters I've ever created exist you know, co-exist and they all find at the themselves in the time. same time, and right? they may all find themselves <laughs> and their paths cross, because yeah. that's kind of like the reality of my universe.
0: Yeah. Now, Marnie, on the other hand, uh, you know, she's a kick-ass heroine, doesn't take any shit, but, you know, deeply vulnerable, as we've just discussed. You once uh, said that she was fighting against something that you described as the stigma of victimhood. I wonder if you could explain what you meant by that.
3: Yes, I think, well, she very keenly feels that she doesn't want to be a victim. She, for Her job, as she sees it as a detective, is to help victims and to um, find justice for victims. But she's seen a lot of people very you know, badly treated by life, who just basically are felled by the things that have happened to them and, and don't ever get back up again and don't ever fight on. And I think that's the, the horror in the back of her head is that that might happen to her one day if she, if she doesn't. So somebody whose parents are violently murdered in their own home by um, a 14-year-old boy who happens to be Marnie's foster brother, um, she, I think she, she lives on this knife edge where she feels she might fall Um, From from you know uh, her position of strength as she sees it, um, and and never get back up again. That is the stigma for her um, that you become. I don't think she necessarily feels being a victim itself is a stigma, but I think she feels that what it what you let it do to you could potentially and become. Uh, stigmatising. So, But she's. But again, because of the way that I'm taking her on this um, journey through the series, she's becoming softer as she becomes stronger. So she is um, I think less scared of falling, less scared of... Um, and, and, and she was very brittle so she seems to be very hard and kick-ass in the first book, yeah. quite spiky, um, quite angry um, and quite unforgiving um, in some respects, whereas by the time you've got to the fourth book, she's actually much softer and much more Um, uh, gentle with herself and with other people she opens herself up to people she tells them secrets that could potentially you know turn around and bite her if she's told them to the wrong people Um, but she's much Tougher because I suppose it's the difference between being brittly hard and being sort of flexibly hard, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah, and I think, you know, there is this idea that she has this empathy for the victims that she's helping because she has been a, a victim herself. And in the first book, she doesn't like that. She resents that necessity of, of knowing how it feels to, to be a victim. Whereas by the time we get to book four, she's actually learned how to make that pain into something positive so that she can... Be Closer to those victims and help them in meaningful ways as but opposed to just feeling their pain. That,
0: that notion, though, of how trauma affects people is that something I know? I know your grandmother was a, a Japanese prisoner of war. Yes. Now, is that something that she spoke about, something that you've you know taken on and taken in, and, and I, how that kind of trauma affects people?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I oddly enough, my grandmother who lived through the most you know horrendous three years as a young mother, she so my mother was. Um, just about two years old when the Japanese um, took them prisoner. So my grandmother and her husband and her child were taken prisoner Um, but she lived she survived through that she was you know if you'd ever met her she was the least obviously traumatized I mean she was hugely funny hugely courageous she went back she after the war she she went to North Wales um, because she was advised to because both she and my mother had suffered pneumonia in the camp Um, and she took any number of jobs you know she worked anywhere and everywhere to just sort of keep the um, keep the family together and it wasn't really it's only through little snippets of things that I've found out since then that I realized how deep the, the trauma went so she would always just say if that hadn't happened to her she wouldn't have grandchildren you know and, and it, you know she feels it was the making of her in a kind of way um, but my mother told me fairly recently that it was it wasn't until about two years after the war that she knew for sure that her husband had died oh, wow. so for two years because it was a chaos of course no one really knew there were no graves there were no records um so Every time there was a knock on the door, she would think this was going to be it. This was going to be news of some kind, um, and I, you would never, you know, never have guessed that if you'd met her because she was so focused on being positive about about the experience.
0: The things you're both talking about in terms of the way you approach your characters, the way you approach your stories, um, it strikes me that you'd be equally at home writing within straight down the down the line literary genre. So why crime? Why did you Why did you start writing crime? Oh, I Belinda. fell
1: backwards into it. It was, yeah. it was not my intention. I didn't. You know, I was. I wrote Black Lands, um, and it didn't occur to me for one second that it was a crime novel just because it had a serial killer in it. Because
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: because, the, because the serial killer was already convicted. He was in prison. Everything had happened twenty years ago. I really wasn't familiar with the genre. I had no idea. And so, and then when I. I went to sign a contract and they said to me well what's your next we'll give you a two book deal what's the second one going to be about and I said it's going to be about two children in a spaceship and they Ah. said no it's not can we have have a a word (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) I whipped that contract away from under my hand very quickly (laughs) yes absolutely and so um so you've got
0: to write that book though Is that still there, bubbling around in In the back back of your mind? I
1: know exactly what it's all about. Patrick in a spaceship. (laughs) Yeah. Two kids.
0: Patrick in space. amazing.
1: But yeah, so I sort of did fall into it by accident. And at first I was a little bit resentful because I thought, well, I don't want to be restricted. And then I realised very quickly that crime is the least restrictive genre. It's the most, it's the widest of all possible genres. And also that almost every book anybody's ever read in the history of literature has got a crime at its heart.
0: I, I couldn't agree more. You're actually the first writer I've ever heard say that, who I believed, uh, <laughs> saying, well, I wrote this book with a serial killer in it, I never thought it was a yes. crime You see people on panels and events yes. all the time going, I'm not actually a crime writer. Oh, yeah, and yeah, people yeah. go, but your book's got eight murders in <laughs> <Yes>. it. <laughs> what, what about you, Sarah? What drew you to crime?
3: Well, I'd always read... my All my favourite books um, when I was growing up were crime books um, and all my favourite TV dramas were crime and my favourite films were either crime or horror Um, so I but I had this idea that I couldn't do plotting because um, I don't Well, I don't actually do plotting now. And until quite recently, I thought I was getting away with it and um, (laughs) that I was doing it wrong. And sooner or later, someone would go, now tell us how you plotted your book. And I'd have to go um, and make something up. But in fact, I discovered loads of people that write like the way I do and they don't plot it. And it sort of happens organically. But um, it wasn't until a friend of mine um, said to me that what is plot anyway, it's just a series of coat hangers. Um, and I've been thinking it, up until then, I've been thinking of it like this sort of a massive monster, you know, like how on earth could I grapple it like this sort of tentacled fiend? And when they just said it's a series of Kotang, it became so mundane, I thought, you know what, I've got to give this a go. now It took me a few goes to get it right, because with the non-plotting thing, it's a bit of a, an obstacle. But um, but I think exactly what Blinda said, I think this huge um uh, scope um, and you can go anywhere with you a crime can. novel. You can go deep. You yeah. can go wide. Um.
1: You can go funny. You can go exactly. dark. You can go, exactly. Exactly. Oh, it's a and also, genre. it's
3: subversive. I think yes. it's the most subversive of all yeah. genres. I think if you're not subverting, uh, obviously we subvert people's expectations because that's what we're doing with twists, etc. But if you're not being slightly subversive in your you know, in the story that you're telling, then I feel, I, I feel personally, I'm not doing it right. I so think you I can love subvert.
0: That. I don't mind subverting. The, the one I hate is transcending. Oh. It's when people, this is a book that transcends the genre. Oh, no. That just, that always... <laughs> yes. Because it's a perfectly good genre. It doesn't exactly. need transcending. It doesn't. Uh, but subverting is good. Yes. But you're both very different writers uh, in, in one way, in that, Sarah, you write a series so far, uh, a series of novels. You write standalones or loosely linked standalones. Um, what made you make those decisions? I mean, f- firstly, do you think you will take a break from the series at any point and write um, a standalone?
3: Yes, definitely. I'm, in fact, I am te- fully intend to do that after that. So I'm writing Marnie Rohn book five. Five, then I will write my new Rome book six, and then okay, I so to six. Do, yeah, yeah, at the moment, I mean, I'm, I, you know, if I'm able to come back to it, I'd love to. But I really, I'm absolutely panting to write a standalone. I just want that. <laughs> I want so many people I've spoken to recently writing series that have taken a break and are writing a standalone. They say you go back to the series energized at yep. the end of it. It's so liberating. I have to say, I love crime, and I love the fact that yeah, you know, I love my detective team, but police procedural. Is can I mean you'll know this one? It's like you, you break off from the work of a you know imagination. You're really there. You're right in the moment, and you realise you've got to go and research ballistic firearms yeah. residue. Right and it's a real you know. <laughs> so, Gotta be done. I know exactly. So, um, but I do sometimes like you know I, I've I, I just think it will be lovely. Just and you know, the standalone I'm intending to write is going to be really. It's I think it might actually all take place virtually in one room. Not quite as as close yeah. as that. Um, but just I'm already I've written some of it and just the idea of not having to at any point stop and go and research anything because it's my world um, and I've got complete control over it yeah um, I'm finding quite exciting
0: but but I guarantee though that when you're about halfway through that standalone, you will think why did I decide to do it I could just be money yes. money but you, but it but that stepping out of your comfort yes. zone is a brilliant thing yes. to do I think and I think writers should do it. do it so what about you Belinda are you panting to write a series
1: only financially.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. I, I know that's where people make a lot of money. People get invested in your series character and, and, and they buy a lot of books. But uh, to be honest, I think I've almost got the best of both worlds, which is that um, you, know, I don't, um, you know I don't feel restricted at all. But having developed these books where paths do cross and I have no compunction about bringing somebody from book three into book seven and you know, and then doing a prequel and then doing this that and the other with it. it doesn't bother me at all. I think it's fun for people to have those unexpected little pleasures but I also have to say how much I admire people who can write a series because I think that being able to settle down and start a new book and actually introduce your series character in a convincing way every single time (laughs) without repeating the same thing and bringing all their history into the book I mean, that really does put me off, Bringing the honest. history
0: to the book without giving away yeah, stuff that's happened giving, in earlier books exactly. is a tricky balance very, to strike. Very, very difficult. But I do think, actually, I I, I think you might be slightly wrong about the, the whole sort of financial and commercial thing in that I think the series used to be the Holy Grail, mm. certainly within Crafty. I'm not sure it is anymore. I don't anymore. think
3: it is. I feel very much it's not. I think at the moment everybody loves standalones, oh, it seems okay. to well, me. But by the better. time I've written it and it's been published, <laughs> who knows? Maybe, they, maybe I'll have missed the Well, it's the, that thing, the, isn't, the isn't it? People <laughs> pick
0: up a book off the shelf and they go, oh, Marnie Rome, 40. Oh, I haven't read the first yeah. forty-six, and they put it back. Yeah. Whereas they think they read a standalone, and go, I love that, and then they look at the front, and go, oh, there's a whole series. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, I, I think standalone. I on I am the opposite of you. I really envy and, and yeah. admire people that write standalone after standalone. Mm-hmm. Because at least as writers of series, we have some kind of framework, don't we? We know that character is going to be there and at some point there's going to be scenes with that character. Yes, Yes. I recognise
1: that. When I've reused characters, when I've recycled characters in my standalones, there is a lovely um, familiarity when I do reintroduce a character that I know I love and that that readers love. Um, I'm doing it in the book I'm writing at the moment, which is with um, Detective John Marvel. Um, this is his first case in the West Country, having been disgraced up in London. But, uh, you know, so, so things like that, you know, I, and I, I really enjoy meeting him again and spending time with him again. But if you said to me, your next five books have to be about John Marvel, I'd kill myself.
0: OK, well, so, so before we wrap things up, what's next for you both? Obviously, Belinda, you're going to be writing Patrick in space. But before <laughs> before that one, what is next for you both?
1: Um, I'm, as soon as I finish the book that I'm writing at the moment, which is probably hopefully going to be on the train home from here. <laughs> right?
0: right, you're back close. Um, uh,
1: then I immediately start researching the next book. Um, I've got two in mind, and depending on the research, one of those I'll start writing in about um, August, September, that kind of thing. but
0: anything you can tell us about the book you're about to finish?
1: Um, yeah. I'm just trying to remember what the book is that I'm about <laughs> to finish. The book you're about to finish? <laughs> oh, yes, it, um, it's a prequel to Blacklands. Ah, okay. It is John Marvel's very first case down in the West Country. Oh fantastic. Yeah, so and that'll set be back out near Exmo. like a year from now. It'll be out in November.
0: November this year? I hope so. Lord. <laughs> okay, and what's it called?
1: I haven't got a title for uh, it yet. Oh, is that, is that killing you? Um I do have a title that I think my publishers will like, but I if I say it and they don't like it. Oh then okay. Say Are you scared stupid. to tell them? Um, No, I think they'll like (sighs) it. I'm just worried. I always hate to commit to a title unless I absolutely adore it, in case I think of something better before publication day.
0: (laughs) So Unnamed Book will appear uh, this November. What about you, Sarah?
3: Um, well, I'm uh, not quite that close to finishing Marnie Five, but I will hopefully have finished it before Harrogate because I don't want to be one of those authors that has to be in their hotel room desperately writing on my deadline. Not like, at no, you exactly, want to be in the bar is exactly. where you want to be. Um, writing. So, so, <laughs> writing, yes. writing in the bar, yes, just yes. surrounded by gin. Yes, yes, perfect. Um, so no, so that will be, so that's called uh, Come and Find Me. And it's going to be out in, I think it's something like the 9th of April um, next year. Right. And then as soon as I finish, virtually straight away, straight into m Six, which doesn't have a title yet, but I have actually already written the opening scene for it, which I never normally do. Oh, okay. But I just had an idea for yeah. the opening scene, and I had to write it. So, um, so yes, yeah, so I'm seamlessly, hopefully, going to go straight from <laughs> five with, to six, and then with just Harrogate and some gin in between, and
0: then the standalone. Yes. Okay. So now, as promised, in each episode, we ask our guests to bring their recommendations for a good read and a good watch. Belinda, let's start with you. What have you read recently that you'd recommend to our listeners?
1: Um, I haven't read anything recently at all, I read non-fiction mostly for research. Okay. Um, uh, but I, as far as crime goes, I used to really enjoy reading Jim Thompson. Oh yeah. And um, so the killer inside me.
0: There you go. I'm not arguing with that. And what about something you've seen recently on television? Doesn't it doesn't even have to be recently. Something well, you think somebody I'm needs to catch very, up
1: I am very late with everything. If somebody, if, if the whole world loves something, I refuse to watch it. It was like two years or something. So I've only just finished watching Breaking Bad. And I, okay. couldn't, I couldn't recommend anything more highly than that. Okay. But I will definitely be watching Luther now that I've heard Sarah sell it so well to me.
0: Okay, well, there you go. So Killer Inside Me and Breaking Bad. What about you, Sarah? Um
1: Well, I've um,
3: just... Um Uh, Loads of books I've read recently, but there's one that's coming out, but it's a reissue, so you can actually buy it now if you want. Um, It's called The Hours Before Dawn, and it's by a writer called Celia Fremlin, who is a sort of um, British contemporary of Patricia Highsmith. So she was writing, this book is her debut, um, which came out, I think it's something like 1958. Um, And it's just such a brilliant psychological thriller. It's about um, a new mother whose baby doesn't sleep, and so um, when whilst trying to make her baby sleep by walking at night with the baby in the pram around London, she becomes increasingly paranoid and starts to hallucinate. And Or is she? Or is she? Are there footsteps behind her? Um, and Favour are reissuing it um, in July, I think it is. It's got, a, it's got glow-in-the-dark lettering on the cover of the book. Oh, movie. that's always good. I think it's very cool. <laughs> um, so that would be my, my book recommendation. Um, and I've just watched an amazing documentary on Netflix called Casting John Bonet. Which is just oh, a, about um, the murder. Yes. Of the, yeah. But it, it really is unlike any other documentary I've ever really? seen. And I think that, that it's a group of um, uh, it's mainly amateur actors who are auditioning for the roles of, I suspect, a project that was never intended to be made a, a, a film about the uh, awful um, killing of, of John Bonet in America. Um, but um, I think the whole project was always just casting John Bonet um, and that they just led the, the people to believe that they were actually auditioning for something more. But it's, it's, it's extraordinary. It's very difficult to watch in places, but it's also just... Very, very unlike any other documentary I've seen, and the last five minutes of it are just sort of goosebump central. So oh, definitely, okay. it's on Netflix. definitely. Right. Recommend some fine that
0: recommendations. One. There. I'm, I'm actually going to throw one in, which I don't normally do, which is a novel called Missing Presumed by Susie Steiner. Oh, yes. Which, if you haven't read read it, you really, really need to. One of the it's best. I mean, and it's a debut, sickeningly good. Uh, <laughs> and I'm also lucky enough to have read the next one that's coming out called oh, I've Persons got it. I haven't Unknown. Read it yet. Fabulous Missing Presume by Susie Steiner Um, And that's about it uh, For this episode of A Stab in the Dark In this episode What have we found out Well we've learned that the countryside And the city both have unique characteristics When it comes to crime fiction Uh, That the theme tune to The Archers Is far scarier than the theme to Psycho Uh, No detective should wet himself at a crime scene And we now know what to feed a chameleon We'll be back again next time With more fantastic names From the worlds of crime fiction and crime drama But in the meantime You can find out more about A Stab in the Dark At uktv.co.uk Slash a stab in the dark or get in touch with us on twitter hashtag a stab in the dark plus don't forget to review us on your podcast app your feedback really does make a difference so if you like the show please rate and review us if you don't keep your ill-informed opinions to yourself and just a quick reminder you can watch the best crime drama every day on uk tv channels alibi and drama so with that it's a huge thank you to my very special guests belinda bauer and sarah hillary and thanks to our producers paul hirons joel porter and john lemon my name's mark billingham and thanks for listening